0: Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. To love the church is to be willing to put it to death, to betray it in the name of what we love in it. It is to choose disruption over homeostasis, to confront the violence that inheres in the ordinary run of things, to refuse the lure of a peace that is not the presence of justice, but the absence of disruption to our privileged lives. For us, in whose name the ordinary violence of the society we live in is committed, it is to refuse the temptation to distinguish between a pure and ideal form of Christianity to which we aspire, and the oppressive and lethal Christianity of which we are a part. That is a section uh, I was reading from A Theology of Failure, Zizek Against Christian Innocence by Marika Rose. And uh, Marika, it is so great to uh, be able to chat with you again.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah. So just to give a little heads up, for our listeners today, today we're going to be talking about failure, and we're going to talk about how different kinds of Christianities and theologies have related to uh, failure, um, uh, the, the failure of our ideologies, the failure of Christianity, failures of our politic, and then we're going to talk about one of my favorite things to talk about is violence and uh which your book spends a great deal of time discussing as well uh, i want to talk about this zizekian politic how it di- differs from liberalism's politic of inclusion and then to wrap it all up if you're still hanging around i would love for uh, listeners to check out the part where we're going to discuss the implications of what this stuff uh, might have for marxists communists and socialists that sound cool That sounds great. Awesome. So let's go ahead and start. um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're up to, and then give us the short of your book.
1: Cool. So um, I'm an academic based in the UK. Um, I teach philosophy and theology at the University of Winchester, um, which is in the south of England. Um, And uh, basically, my book is um, an attempt to think about uh, what it might mean to take seriously the ways in which the church the history of the church is a history of all kinds of failures. Um, you get different attempts kind of from across the political and theological spectrum to try and find a kind of pure form of Christianity where um, if we can figure out what went wrong and why the church has ended up doing bad things, then we can get back to a better or a ro- kind of move forwards to a kind of better or more perfected form of Christianity where we won't do these bad things anymore. Um, and you get kind of, you get conservative versions of that. So, Uh, you get the kind of radical orthodoxy version which was you know if only we hadn't um, given up on uh, colonialism and uh, theological empire and degraded ourselves into secularism then things would be amazing but you also get kind of uh, progressive or, or radical versions of that like you know what we find of jesus as a message of kind of liberation um and then the church later kind of loses sight of that radical message of transformation revolution uh gender equality those sorts of things and if we can just get back to that then we'll have a good form of christianity again um, and i guess i was interested in what would it mean to think about christianity as something in a, in a materialist way so that christianity is like the sum total of all the things that christianity has been and done uh, mm. over its history um, and to to kind of take seriously <laughs> those problems and to see them as being often really deeply entangled with the things that we might value about christianity and um, so to not just kind of make ourselves innocent to find some kind of pure form where we can disavow all of the bad things that Christians have done.
0: Yeah. I, I found it really interesting and, and refreshing. I, and I grew up, um, fundamentalist evangelical and, and then I transitioned and I spent some time in more liberal, um, circles as well. And there was always a question of, okay, is there a, is there a pure Christianity or who, right? Who has the purest Christianity or yeah. who has the purest theology? And, yeah, and so your book engages these kinds of questions in a very different way than I had previously experienced. So I appreciate your work. Thank you. Um, so let's go ahead and like kind of start from the ground and and work our work our, our, our way up. Could you name for us some of the foundational assumptions? of this Zizekian understanding of failure, incompleteness, and division. Because next, you know, I want to talk about how different Christian theologians have approached this question. But let's start with Zizek's um, analysis of of what this failure is about.
1: Yeah, so um, Zizek kind of gets... uh... Starts out uh, in his work thinking about ideology and thinking about the ways that we get invested in particular ways of organizing society. A lot of his work is about like why, why is it that people are really invested in forms of social organization that are obviously like bad and destructive? Like how do we get kind of hooked into them? How do we start believing in them even when they're obviously a mess? Um, and then over time, he gets more and more interested in the question of, uh, I guess, kind of what the basis is for that those ways of thinking about society and relating to society and what he ends up doing is he ends up drawing a kind of um drawing a connection between the structure of individual people uh, the structure of societies and the structure of material reality as a whole so for zizek everything that exists is founded on incompleteness and antagonism and um, it's out of Uh, that incompleteness and antagonism that things come into being at all so he really likes like quantum physics this idea of quantum uncertainty Um, and what that means is that we have uh, these societies that come into being with contradictions with antagonisms um, and that we start to want to find ways to make them whole Uh, we start to to want to find the thing that will Uh, complete us as a person and perfectly satisfy us or we want to find the reason why society isn't harmonious Uh, either a thing that we need that we don't currently have that if we could just get this one thing then everything would be better or this thing that we want to blame for the fact of incompleteness and antagonism like if we could just get rid of this one group then everything would be great all of our problems would be gone um And one of the things that Zizek is that's interesting about Zizek is that he starts to then sort of tie that into kind of a dialectical materialist. So this kind of old Marxist tradition of thinking about the structure of politics and society emerging out of the structure of the material world as such, Um, which is interesting because that's a very different way of understanding the nature of things then you get in a lot of classical christianity which is very much about uh believing that there are these kind of abstract perfect forms of things that that christianity kind of takes from platonism um that means it becomes invested in this idea of wholeness
0: mm. yeah so i hear you saying a few things on one hand if i understand you correctly Zizek is saying that all of our thoughts, including our theologies or our perspectives of the world or our our ideas, our experiences, and any kind of of system or structure or things like socialism, capitalism, communism, everything fails. There's no such thing as completeness or uh, there is no system or person or relationship without contradiction. And one of the Ways of responding to that could be to say, "Well, let's pursue wholeness. Let's let's um, pursue harmony, or um, let's resist failure. Uh, let's you know, let's achieve some kind of society that has that that is without failure." But Zizek is saying that that's that's not a thing, right? The goal is not oneness or purity yeah. or perfection.
1: Yeah, and and also that it's out of it's out of incompleteness, it's out of contradictions that new things emerge as well. So the fact that we can't ever be perfectly in control of our lives, have all the things that we want to satisfy us, that's what makes the world interesting. That's what means that there are possibilities. That's how new things kind of come into being. That's, you know, to be alive is constantly to be changing. And so we're never going to get to this point where we've like solved everything. Um, And that is a source of potential transformation as well as a kind of uh, I guess a kind of limit on how much we can figure things out and control things perfectly.
0: Yeah, and one of the one of the pushback that I I would assume that perhaps some people feel between this dichotomy, the, this more popular dichotomy, right? Do you just accept the the reality that failure is that everything fails, that um, uh, every person or system or idea is incomplete? And we, you kind of drift into this relativism or the other side is like, well, no, you, you're pursuing this wholeness. You're pursuing this harmony. Um, how does this this uh, Zizekian, like, acknowledgement of failure and then actually at times pursuing failing, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Pursuing the disrupting of things. How, yeah. how is that different from relativism?
1: So I think that one of the things that is important for Zizek is that is a kind of... Um, absolute commitment to following things through uh that is different than uh believing that there's some kind of perfect thing and so Zizek talks a lot about um desire and drive and so for Zizek like we as we come into the world for like a mixture of of random things happen to us and for whatever reason, out of the things that happen to us, we kind of assemble what what we want, what drives us, and um, what moves us forwards. Um, and so uh, for Zizek, the, the thing is not to be absolutely committed to a vision of what things would be like if they were perfect, but to be absolutely faithful to that drive within us, which constantly pushes us to change, to move, to grow, uh, to engage with the world and be transformed by it. Um, I think uh, one of I think one of the kind of uh, best um, articulations of of Zizek's kind of ideal relationship to the self. I feel like there's somewhere that he quotes like Lenin or someone and says has something about like assuming your fate. And I I know I've read that somewhere. (laughs) I'll never find it. Um, But I think a better version, uh, a a kind of uh, helpful version of that is uh, Dolly Parton, who says, um, find out who (laughs) you are and do it on purpose, that, um, that, that who we are and what we want, what orients us to the world, like is just to some extent random. Like, why do I want the things I want? I don't really know. And I can't really make sense of it. But what Zizek wants us to do is to take absolute responsibility for who we are and for what we want and mm. to pursue that uh, to its limit. Um, even if, as for Zizek, it mostly will do, it threatens the structure of the society that we live in. Um, that, that what drives us forward, what we want, can't be contained by the world as it currently is. Um, and if we find a way of being ruthlessly faithful to that drive within ourselves, which will kind of constantly be changing in certain ways as we grow and develop. Uh, so it's a kind of moving fidelity, but it is a kind of absolute fidelity to something uh, at whatever cost.
0: Yeah, do yourself on purpose. Thank you, Dolly Parton. That's awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so a, a lot of the the work that you're doing in this in this book in particular is you say that you want to help the church fail better. Uh, you want to use this idea of failure and, and help theology or Christianity um, fail better. So let's go ahead and talk about two different kind of theological strands, two different kinds of Christianities that you engage. And I can't remember, if it's like chapter two or three, but it's radical orthodoxy and um, the deconstructionist theologies of John Caputo and Catherine Keller. Um, could you could you introduce a, li- a little to, uh, could you introduce us a little bit to how these two different kinds of Christianities and Christian theologies have related to, on one hand, Christianity's own failure historically, uh, both past and present, and then the second part would be t- the notions of failure in general, right, incompleteness and division and un- and unfulfillment.
1: Yeah, so um, Radical Orthodoxy uh, is this uh, kind of theological movement that emerges out of the UK and really the the basic story that Radical Orthodoxy tells is that um, Christianity was kind of at its peak um, in the medieval period um, uh, oh. when there were like, so sort <laughs> of some like, uh, they really like Chesterton who has this sort of like Uh, slightly fascist idea of like just small communities taking care of one another Uh, and so they really like this idea of guilds. so like guilds are this kind of great form of social organization the medieval liturgy was this perfect form of liturgy Uh, this idea that theology was the queen of the sciences is the right and proper ordering of things and when theology stops being in charge of everything when Christendom starts to break apart that's when everything goes wrong Um, and if we can just go back to that period, uh, to that way of understanding the role of theology and the role of Christianity, then everything will be great. So it's basically (laughs) just a desire to kind of recover empire. Um, You can imagine that lots of theologians really love it because it's a way of convincing ourselves that theology is this really important academic discipline in a world that mostly does not uh, tell us that. Um, But um, it's bad partly because it's just a wildly (laughs) mythical, made-up vision of this uh, medieval Christianity that never even existed. Um, I think there's a point at which Catherine Pickstock, who's one of the important uh, thinkers in radical orthodoxy, refers to this liturgy that isn't even from the period that she's talking about. So it just it requires on nice this really kind of fantasy version of what medieval Christendom was like. Uh, this uh, post-colonial melancholia, I think. Like, wasn't it great when Christians ran everything, when theologians were the most important people in the academy? <laughs> um, and it doesn't have space for... Uh, really anything that isn't christianity so uh, as soon as you remove christianity for radical orthodoxy as the kind of foundation of ethics and politics uh, you end up with nihilism uh so it's it's a vision of the world that wants to see christianity running everything um and
0: yeah yeah, yeah. and uh if i could read just a little uh section that you that, that i think spoke right to the radical orthodoxy part on page 178 you're right uh the work of love for us is to refuse to be drawn by the fantasy of some lost perfection, of a perfectly liberatory historical Jesus, of an inerrant original text of scripture, of a patristic inheritance which has always already solved all the problems of the contemporary world, of a medieval mass that so perfected language as to be its condition of possibility. And that really spoke with me, uh, especially coming from traditions where where there was this longing to rediscover the perfect, uh, in the past. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think, and it's interesting as well, because even when you look at what is going on, what's going on is, is new. And there's this, but there's this inability to recognize that what's happening is new. So you find that in radical orthodoxy, for example, which in lots of phrases are really creative, engaging with contemporary philosophy. That is, And I think that's the best thing about it, that actually radical orthodox thinkers were kind of at the forefront in terms of theology of engaging with contemporary philosophy and responding to ideas that no one else was engaging with in this really creative way. But there's this inability to acknowledge their creativity. And I think you see something really similar in conservative forms of evangelicalism. You know, these very creative rereadings of the Bible, uh, these really uh, specifically contemporary forms of Christianity that just didn't exist. Uh, that are really unable to recognise that what they're doing is new. That this this way of reading the Bible doesn't go back to biblical times. It's new. It's creative. It's doing new things. But because the story is all about recovering this earlier form of Christianity, you can't be honest about what's actually going on. Um,
0: yeah, and actually, uh, now that you say the the whole contemporary evangelical thing, one of the uh, one of the early things I was facing in your book is that you're talking about someone called. Uh, Dionysius. And as an yeah. evangelical, I was taught that I didn't have to know Christian history. And so I just skipped <laughs> 2000 years. And even, uh, yeah, so I probably read a little bit of Dionysius in uh, seminary, but uh, I, it was funny because just coming from my own tradition, I think that's a great example of this skipping back to some kind of perfect moment, whether we're saying the the perfect person in the perfect moment was something in the Bible or, or the Bible is perfect or the perfect moment was in, in medieval Christianity. I, I've, uh, yeah, there, there's, there's so much that we're actually personally, I am missing out. I have a very limited, my, my view, my understanding of the expanse of Christianity, what it has been, what it is today fails.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember a very similar experience. Like I grew up evangelical and just this experience of going to university and suddenly realizing that like, people people who lived like after the canon of scripture was closed and before the reformation like were really Christians <laughs> and were really trying to read the Bible and work out what it meant. And it just was this kind of mind blowing, like, whoa, like, I just thought that, I don't know like what happened in that period, but that people just kind of gave up and then it was all like made up liturgy and tradition and it didn't really have anything to do with Christianity. And then you're like, what these people think they're doing is kind of related to what I think I'm doing. Um, And when you read those people, I mean, you can read them in the radical orthodoxy way, right? And be like, oh, well, they were doing it right. Because you get versions of that, that these people, actually, this is the best way to do it. And we need to go back to them, which is a sort of similar move to evangelicalism, but just picking a different point in Christian history as the point where people were getting it right. Or you can read them and go, oh, they were trying to make sense of Christianity in their particular context using the resources available to them and what they're doing, the kind of things they're creating are analogous to the kinds of things I'm creating as I read the Bible, engage with Christian tradition in my period of time. And the fact that they thought that they were doing the right thing and ended up just with really like horrendous ideas suggests that maybe I might do the same thing and not be aware of it. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so here's uh radical orthodoxy. And then there's a, there's another tradition that might be more uh, familiar with a lot of our listeners, the deconstructionist theologies of John Caputo and Catherine Keller.
1: Yeah. And so, um, I mean, this is the kind of other big strand of people who are reading and engaging with contemporary philosophy from a Christian perspective. Um, and, what you find I think often in to people who particularly are kind of interested in Derrida um, and in deconstructionism um, and what you often find is people um, suggesting that uh, the kinds of rigid divisions uh, the clear um, rules about what is and isn't okay that you find in like mid 20th century Christianity I guess are uh, limited that we need to realize that rather than drawing these stark lines of distinction and division. Um, what Christianity is really about is about relationality and connection um, and about ideas changing and developing over time. Um, and I think uh, that's much closer to the kind of thing I'm arguing, but um, I think there's a kind of key difference, which is that um, what you often find in these ways of thinking about things is this idea that everything is complicated we need to just hold on to ideas a little bit less tightly that really the problem with um, christianity is it's too rigid understanding on things that uh, you know we we want to assert things really definitely and that brings us into proximity with other groups who do violent bad things to uh, so Caputo likes to com- kind of compare that way of thinking about theology with uh, the kinds of fundamentalism that makes you fly planes into um, the twin towers um so this idea that that believing things too much is destructive and so the solution is to kind of believe things a bit less uh mm. to chill out uh but um i think there are, are two <laughs> problems one is that um it means if you if your solution to people believing things too much and then doing bad things is to believe things a little bit less it sort of becomes irrelevant like what things you believe a little bit less what's important is your relation to those beliefs and that you don't hold on to them too tightly um but what that often does is it really fails to pay attention to the fact that what's important is not just what we believe about the world but what we do in the world um and that what we do in the world uh doesn't rely on us believing in it straightforwardly. This is something that Žižek talks about a lot. The way that, uh, you know, the way that capitalism functions, we don't need to believe straight- straightforwardly that money is real for those systems to kind of continue functioning, anyway. We don't need to, um, we don't need to, to really believe in the ideology of work for people to be forced to go out and work by the violent threat of not being able to house themselves. And I think really what you get in the shift. In, in deconstructionism is this sense that that what is what they're doing is a kind of radical unsettling of things but actually i think what's really going on is much more that you see mirrored in those theologies uh what the shift that's going on in terms of uh the economy and the forms of government that are at work in the world so uh, mid-20th century Western economies uh, are very Fordist. So they're about, um, really, they're about production, they're about putting people in factories, rigidly regulating their days, about really kind of clear lines of distinction. You see that in terms of um, how we organise race. So you have these really clear, the Jim Crow laws in the South, these really clear, sharp lines of distinction uh, in terms of gender roles. That, that The way that power works is about clear um, places where power is exercised clear divisions um that fit with certain kinds of rigid ideas about the family, about work, about religion. But what you see um over the second half of the twentieth century is a shift of post Fordism, which is about uh an economy that's financialized, so it's about much less about kind of producing clear objects and much more about mm-hmm. um, ideas, about service work, um, the the lines between um, education and employment become much more blurry, um, the way the government um, exercises control over people becomes much more indirect. Uh, you get, for example, um, so you see this a lot in the kind of shift to Uh, the digital so for example where in uh, Jim Crow America you get redlining so banks explicitly drawing lines around areas and saying we're not going to lend money to people who live uh, in these majority black neighborhoods what you get now is you get uh, computer algorithms gathering data and because the data they're gathering is about a world that is racially unequal you get those same sorts of things like people who live in this area are less Uh, the computer will tell you that they're not such a good investment. And it isn't because anyone's been like, don't lend money to black people. It's like the algorithms. So these forms of control uh, that are much more kind of fluid and adaptable. And we are encouraged ourselves to become much more fluid and adaptable. You don't go work in one place um, until you retire. We're expected to be constantly learning new skills, moving to new industries, switching between jobs. And so this idea of a kind of fluid, uh, way of relating to things, I think is much more reflective of that shift to post-Fordism than it is actually about a revolution or a meaningful transformation in the direction of of justice.
0: Um, Uh, Excellent. So if I I hear you correctly, and and then uh, maybe if you can bounce back where I'm missing pieces right here, but do I hear you say that it's really important to uh, radically unsettle, right? radically uh, dis- disrupt and decon do the deconstructive work but that there are still particular systems and structures and ways um, in which our communities and our and our relationships and our lives are organized that need uh, completely disrupted and and replaced um, and that if we say, if we just take a step back and say everything is just so complicated and everything relates everything or, or everything is related to everything and 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 everything's kind of influencing each other um, that you can end up actually reproducing and reinstating the current order of things and what we're looking for is to to think about what um to engage the world both in its complexity but also deliberately uh make choices, um, as to what needs to be radically disrupted. Um, I, I you know, you, you, throw out the word choosing a revolution and, and radical transformation as opposed to say, listen, things are complex and let's just sit back on our ass.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's also about paying attention to what's going on at the level of the material, right? So, I think you see this really interestingly in uh, recent debates around trans issues. So what you find in society is a much greater growing acceptance of people expressing gender however they want to. Um, There's pushback against that that's often about the fact that this is a change. Um, But what you see as this happens and as, you know, as government bodies will kind of post things about like, it's okay for you to be whatever gender you want, but they won't provide the kind of material resources that people need to transition. So there's a gap between what's going on at the level of ideas and how we relate to one another, uh, interpersonally. And then what, what resources we actually provide for one another. Uh, we see, um, Uh, a kind of growing shifting and changing in terms of representation of different kinds of identities in the media but we see actually an intensification of material inequality um around gender or around race and so it's about that disconnection as well from the kind of i guess the abstract formal forms of freedom and then how material resources are actually distributed like can people afford to pay their rent uh it doesn't really matter whether or not you uh You know, like, it it doesn't matter in lots of ways if your landlord, like, uses the correct pronouns for you if he's (laughs) charging you rent that you can't afford to pay. Um, So it's that kind of disconnect, I think, as well, between ideas and discourse and actual material realities.
0: That's brilliant. Yeah. Before we move on to questions of violence and nonviolence and such, um, in particular, what might it look like to betray the church in the name of what we love in it? Uh, Yeah, this is perhaps a little different than the approaches of radical orthodoxy or the deconstructionists.
1: I mean, I guess partly what I'm trying to say is that there isn't one Christian tradition that is coherent. Um, And so if you want to pick up on any element in the Christian tradition uh, and push that forward, you will find that you are uh, betraying other aspects of the Christian tradition. I think it is true that there are elements of the Bible in which... uh, Jesus or the Hebrew prophets uh, set out what seems like a kind of radical program of uh, the destruction of the family or a radical reorganization of um, wealth and property. But there are also much more conservative elements in the Bible that feed into material inequalities, that feed into gender inequalities. And so I feel like often what happens uh, particularly for those of us who uh have grown up in evangelical contexts we get into these arguments about like what does the bible really say like which was jesus really uh this guy who cared about family values and uh banning abortion and putting the ten commandments in law courts or was he someone who just welcomed everybody and was really inclusive yeah, yeah. and i think we can't we can't win the argument on those lines partly because it doesn't work anyway for most people uh you can tell people that the bible talks about poverty more than it talks about abortion till you're blow in the face it doesn't actually change things but also because it's not straightforwardly true that if we want to understand why we are where we are we have to understand the role that christianity played in getting us here like how did christianity feed into these ways of thinking about the world that have produced uh racial uh chattel slavery that produced uh, these really patriarchal societies in the West. Um, And if we don't grapple with the ways that Christianity is part of the problem, uh, I don't think it's ever going to be part of the solution because we end up being dishonest about our own history and we end up not really understanding it, understanding the role that theological ideas have played in shaping the world that we live in.
0: For, uh, for lots of Christians in the U.S., and uh, this includes those who are, like, actively committed to more, like, reformist kinds of initiatives, yeah. and then also those who are actively sitting on the sidelines, the question of violence has been made out to be an either-or. Either you are supportive of violence or you are only supportive of nonviolence. I remember in seminary we had lots of debates on this. Sometimes we were like pitting like, oh, uh, is it King or Malcolm X, right? Uh, So uh, this question of violence is pretty popular among especially more liberal Christian communities. So Zizek approaches this question in a different manner though. And I think this has interesting implications for how we as Christians think about our participation in more liberative um, struggles against whether it's capitalism or white supremacy or imperialism and patriarchy. So... Yeah. How does Zizek problematize this notion of violence versus nonviolence?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that Zizek does is he starts to point out that uh, we tend to think about violence as being kind of uh, something that one person does to another. So if I punch you in the face, uh, that's a form of violence. Um, but often what we don't do is we don't think about the context in which it becomes possible for me to punch you in the face. Uh, so the kinds of, uh, symbolic, the ways that we organize society that make it possible for certain kinds of violence to happen. So, uh, the ways in which we organize society such that, uh, we, uh, give men and women different material conditions use different kinds of language about men and women in ways that then feed into the kind of violence that you like interpersonal violence that you see between men and women so he says we have to see those forms of violence as connected to the broader systems and structures that we live in in society you know you don't uh, you don't get people going in and shooting up schools because they're worried about white genocide or because uh, girls rejecting boys we, without the context of people saying those kinds of things in public, without people spreading those ideas around, without that being part of the society that we live in. Mm-hmm. So we have to think about the connection between those individual acts of violence um, <clears throat> and between the interpersonal violence that also plays out um but he also thinks about violence in terms of uh how we think about the, the the system as a whole um and the first thing that he says is that so he uh picks up on um an article by um the german marxist walter benjamin um who has a, an article called critique of violence where he sets out four different types of violence uh so law-founding violence, law-maintaining violence, simple criminal violence, and revolutionary or divine violence. And so what Benjamin says is that any, any political system uh, begins with some kind of uh, violence by which he means a kind of disruptive decision to organise society in this way and not this way. At some point, some people come to hold power and other people don't hold power. Uh, We choose to value some things and not other things. And we can't ever fully um, justify or explain those decisions except as a kind of act out of nowhere. So there's something kind of uh, inexplicable, disruptive about that initial act of founding society that often is also about interpersonal violence like one group of people uh uses violence to defeat another group of people and set mm-hmm. up some kind of system um of injustice and um, we also have law maintaining violence which is the violence that is used to uh maintain the existing order of things that begins with that initial act of violence so uh the kinds of violence that the police do uh whether that's um like harassing young black men to keep racial divisions in place, whether it's uh, going, um, well, I mean, so there's, I think there's a bunch of interesting stuff happening around coronavirus, right? So like one Mm. of the things that the police are doing uh, in the UK is they're harassing people who are just like out for a walk. Mm. Uh, I saw a tweet today about the police harassing someone because uh, they were wearing uh, jeans when they went out for their exercise. What? instead of like exercise trousers or something (laughs) Uh, and that's interesting so it's a form of harassment Uh, and actually I think one of the things that that does when you have the police performing this function of like policing people who are doing things wrong is that you are therefore as a society saying that those people are the people who are the problem rather than as I think is really clearly the case in the UK the government who have not taken Issue seriously enough, who have not acted fast enough to save lives, who've not made sure that healthcare workers have uh, the appropriate kinds of violence. But then when the police go out and harass ordinary people, that that form of violence creates this narrative that those people are the problem rather than the people who are actually the problem. So, all forms of violence that kind of go on uh, the violence that happens at borders, um, the violence that happens throughout the criminal justice system and in prisons. Um, So, there's all that kind of violence that goes on. And then in terms of uh, pushing back against those forms of violence, uh, Zizek talks about sinful, criminal or reactionary violence. So you live in a system that's unjust. uh, You go out and you commit a crime, you rob someone, you steal something. Um, And that form of violence, Zizek says, doesn't disrupt the existing order of things. It's part of the existing order of things. Actually, it kind of helps the existing order of things justify itself, right, that that the the same police who uh, infiltrate um, like radical environmental groups or harass uh, union workers um, are also using this narrative of crime as a way of justifying increased police numbers, increased police powers. So those forms of kind of small transgression don't disrupt things. Uh, but there are forms of disruption that do disrupt things. And this is what Benjamin talks about as revolutionary violence or divine violence and for benjamin that doesn't necessarily have to mean he's much less interested in uh, whether or not someone is physically harmed than he is in in the effect that certain forms of action have on the system of the way that the world is organized so it's much less has someone been hurt then does this meaningfully disrupt the existing order of things does it actually unsettle what is going on because <laughs> you can have people going out and causing people lots of harm uh, in ways that totally feed into the existing order of things, or you can have people going out and doing uh, peaceful forms of protest that are really radically disruptive, Um, and you can see that they're radically disruptive because they often bring down the violence of the state on them. So for Zizek kind of reading Benjamin, the question is less, like, does someone get punched in the face, and much more, what, what impact does this action have on the structure of things does it actually disrupt things does it change the balance of power mm. um, or does it just feed into the way things are
0: okay so uh, if i could just kind of bounce some things back at you here so i hear you saying that violence actually is constitutive uh, and, and it defines uh, all all relationships and and all systems and social orders and we're particularly talking about yeah the larger symbolic and, and systemic um, economic, political, social orders uh, that we live in, and there are two uh, after law founding and law maintaining violence. There's two different ways of of responding to uh, these systems of, of of violence, and or or, sim- or, or symbolic violence, um, reactionary violence ends up enabling or reproducing the current system or the current kind of order of things. Yeah. And then there's a, uh, a divine or revolutionary violence that opens up or it disrupts and it, and it creates the possibility for something wholly other. And, and, and actually sometimes I, uh, in your work, I found you connecting this to the theological idea of creatio ex nihilo. Um, Is that, is that correct? Uh, what do you mean by, like, creating the impossible um, without without being a like, utopian and completely otherly, right? Uh, 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 Otherworldly.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I guess it's this idea that really the art of politics, I think this is a Zizek phrase, is, like, that that politics is the art of the impossible. That, like, so much of the way that society works, right, is we have... Uh, this set of possi- things that seem possible within the existing order of things. Like, it seems possible that... uh I'm trying to think of an example. Um, it seems possible that we might exec- elect this party leader rather than this party leader. Um, but it doesn't seem impossible that like, we could uh, abolish rent. Mm. Um, and so for Zizek, the real art of politics is not about sort of getting the best we can within the range of what seems possible it's about changing what seems possible and creating new possibilities um which is obviously really difficult to do Um, and I think for Zizek one of the things is that you you never quite know if what you're going to do is going to have that effect um all that you can do is kind of try and find ways to work together and to imagine other things and then at some point sometimes uh that will tip over into more radical transformation in a way that seems miraculous that seems like a creation out of nothing um that you know like you see this certain in certain kind of moments of like the history of like political resistance that people will have been doing the same thing for a long time and then suddenly something kind of sets something off in ways that no one could really have predicted um and that's when things really kind of start to change
0: yeah i wonder i wonder if like say in the u.s if we just got a, a bunch of people, and for the next ten years we just go out and protest—I don't know—once every month. Uh, but but if you just keep on protesting on this planned schedule, and again, nothing nothing is changing. Nothing is fundamentally transforming the foundations of society. Um, we uh, a, a revolutionary or more divine form of violence would try and open up a possibility, right? Uh, disrupt the this perhaps the symbolic status quo way of understanding the world or what actually put a halt um, or or cause a crisis in the current system, uh, the current order of things. Is that correct?
1: I mean, I guess the, the, the problem with protesting as an example is that actually I feel like the way that the current order of things is set up is so that people can protest as much as they want and it's never going to change anything. Absolutely. Um, so I think, well, I mean, the, the example that... Um, Benjamin is using in the article that zizek is drawing on and one of the things that's interesting about zizek's work on violence is he never references Benjamin's example which is the general strike oh uh, and so i think the general strike is a really interesting example because you can to get to a general strike it always it is about the kind of uh small forms of strike kind of snowballing and turning into something bigger like it, it's very difficult to kind of sit down at the beginning of doing some political organizing and being like uh we are going to organize a general strike uh because generally what you're doing is a much smaller scale but what you do see sometimes in history is that as smaller forms of organization happen as people go on strike in one workplace uh sometimes that spreads and sometimes it kind of yeah like builds exponentially and unexpectedly into everyone in a particular area like going on strike and so i think the general strike is maybe a better example so doing things that are disruptive on a kind of small scale that are meaningfully Changing things on a small scale, but aren't going to end capitalism. Um, But then, kind of doing enough of that small disruptive work that's building on different logics than the logic of like work and exploitation that we're expected to live by, Mm. that then has the potential to kind of turn into something bigger. Um, Though it's interesting, actually, I was thinking recently, uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about uh, like left politics is how similar it is in lots of different ways to my experience of church and I kind of feel like uh the idea of like the general strike or revolution is uh is a little bit like the idea of revival which was so Mm -hmm. central to the form of spirituality that I grew up with and actually super destructive because you're constantly hoping for a revival oh yes Um, And I think, I mean, Zizek really is interested in, like, how do we overthrow capitalism um, and is very frustrated that that doesn't seem to be a possibility. Um, And I think increasingly I feel like I don't know that that's a helpful horizon in some ways. Like, absolutely, I would love if we could end capitalism, but I think realistically, like, something like it's the hope that kills you. And I think, like, precisely because what Zizek is talking about is in terms of divine violence isn't something you can kind of do deliberately or consciously you can't be like right now we're going to do this thing that's going to end capitalism um it kind of comes out of nowhere a little bit but what you can do is kind of build small things where you find ways to take care of one another uh, push back against some of the worst things about capitalism. And, and, and that being the horizon of kind of organizing with like this possibility that maybe at some point something will snowball in ways that you don't expect. And maybe you need to kind of build the sorts of relationships with people where you would be able to handle that well or something. Mm. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting example of that recently, and this isn't an uh, ending capitalism example, uh, but is uh, the, sudden flourishing of mutual aid groups as the coronavirus has taken place and one of the things I've seen with people I know is that where people have been doing mutual aid organising locally they've been able to get involved with suddenly all these people are kind of drawn into wanting to take care of one another wanting to help one another and where you have mutual aid organising that's been going on already people who've been able to shape what that's looked like uh, who've been able to kind of minimise the involvement of police or make sure that's what's going on is really kind of mutual rather than this charity model so something like that I think that but maybe, maybe trying to work out how we get to revolution is not always the most helpful thing.
0: Mm, that's brilliant. Yeah. So okay. So how is this deliberate choice uh, to disrupt and to, as you say, like traumatize and and shake the foundations uh, of the dominant symbolic and structural order of things different from a more popular liberal commitment to in- inclusion? Uh, To including persons who are historically or currently, say, marginalised or um, disadvantaged.
1: Yeah, so I think this is kind of the the difference between um, liberalism and a kind of radical or revolutionary politics. And I guess um, what liberalism tends to say is, you know, basically where we're at is the way that we're currently organising things is basically okay. Uh, we can push it in different directions. We can maybe kind of want gradual reform. Uh, so like Caputo, for example, is like, capitalism isn't this like big, bad, bad thing. What we can do is we can sort of push for reform so that like inequality is decreased so that um, there aren't as many poor people. Um, and he his critique of Zizek is he just doesn't think that we need this overthrow of capitalism. What we can do is kind of gradual reforms that will make things better. And that kind of politics comes from um, a sense that things are basically okay, but we just need to to include some people who are currently excluded. So, yeah. uh, political liberalism in the kind of modern Western sense is basically fine. Uh, the fact that it includes women and black people and people who don't own property from uh, full citizenship is a kind of accident. Uh, fundamentally the ideas that drive it are good and we just need to kind of include more people so that eventually everyone is included as we widen the borders. Mm. Um, what a more revolutionary politics says is uh, those exclusions are the truth of the system that uh, liberalism, capitalism rely on uh, pushing some people outside of the bounds of humanity, rely on uh, exploitation. Um, and as long as we remain within capitalism, within liberalism, we're going to find those forms of violence. And so ultimately what we should be aiming for is, a, is to, to end capitalism. Um, so it's this kind of, yeah, uh, an insistence that the, the the violences that we see, the bad things that we see, the exclusions we see are part of the system and are not just kind of incidental, aren't accidental, that they're right at the heart of the logics that drive the kinds of systems that we live in um, at the moment.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful because I feel like I, I know a lot of my friends would feel... They, I mean, our relationships were really pivotal in talking about this need to um, recognize the realities of white supremacy and the realities of of uh, heteronormativity and, and, and patriarchy um, and, and mass global inequality across the world. But there is at times this uh, this hesitation to name capitalism as a fundamental uh, or or say like U.S imperialism um, as as fundamental foundational systems of violence that we have to seek its replacement of um, because we could we could say have um, uh, a group of of workers and have one black manager or we could have a school with female teachers or or uh, queer uh, churches with queer pastors but as long as we maintain certain systems of hierarchy and exploitation the vast majority of people including and i would say still especially persons of color people who are gendered as inferior or racial yeah racialized as inferior will remain at the at the bottom uh, there will inequality and hierarchy will persist even if we start to include uh say the the slave the witch and the heretic at higher positions of power
1: well I mean partly because those positions of power are the, the problem like it isn't just about uh, it's that tweet that was uh, I see people circulate a lot with someone being like liberalism means like the demand for like more women prison guards uh, you know you don't if these systems are fundamentally violent you don't make them less violent by including more people Um, you know I've worked for institutions where you have women in positions of leadership and they still enable sexual abuse they still fail to deal with bullying like yeah you have to have a much more radical rethinking of the way that we organize power the way that we uh, decide who counts as human and not uh, the way we decide who has access to uh, wealth or property um, yeah and that you know as long as you live in capitalism, capitalism is going to be finding new ways to uh, create exploitation because that's how it survives.
0: So uh, to wrap this all up, um, what might it look like for us as Marxists and communists or, or socialists to fail better in the 21st century, right? How might our uh, deliberate attempts to fail better Impact how we engage thinkers, you know, like like Marx and Lenin in the past and movements of the past, um, as well as how we understand our own um, ideological frameworks and methods and the goals that we're pursuing.
1: I think that um, I think that one of the things is about trying to think about our relationship to uh, those ideas and thinkers and trying to more seriously grapple with the ways in which uh they fail and the reasons why they failed and um not kind of i think partly recognizing that there isn't like a reading of marks that will mean that we're not gonna mess things up anymore um and a recognition that we need to be constantly responding to what happens in the world around us um, and I think that one of the things that I like about Zizek is in lots of ways it is a, a kind of ethics of relating to other people um, that is about giving up on this idea that these people will be these perfect people that we want to be um, and starting to take pleasure in the ways in which they are not in the ways that the people around us uh, challenge us or surprise us or unsettle us um, and being recognizing that part of part of absolute commitment to a cause is being able is being willing to be kind of constantly changed and to constantly change our ideas and to learn um and to grow um and yeah it's never about like figuring things out and then you go and do things that we need to be constantly uh rethinking things and learning from one another um and i think also one of the things i think about a lot is what it means to give up on the desire to be right or be good. Um, um, And I think we get, particularly as Christians, I think so much of Christianity is about this idea that, you know, because you... Being a Christian is about being in the group of people who have had their sins forgiven, who have been made good. And I think so often our engagement with the world is about reaffirming our sense of ourselves as good people Mm. um, and not being able to deal with things that make us feel like bad people. Um, And I'm interested, I guess, in what it would mean to engage with the church, but also with the world, with politics, uh, recognising that uh, we're all in the middle of all of this stuff that's just a mess um, and we are part of the problem and um, and being able to grapple with the ways in which we're part of the problem in the, the ways in which we are formed by all these really messed up dynamics of exploitation and violence and racism and um, gendered inequality and um, and recognizing that we can't try and change the world without like that, that that engagement with the world is always going to be about transforming ourselves Um so yeah letting go of our desire for goodness, letting go of our desire to feel like a good person, uh, to feel like we are kind of righteous or innocent.
0: Yeah, I always appreciate it when I can have a conversation with a comrade who talks about how the the goals that we're pursuing, the things that we're fighting, we're not trying to replace an imperfect world with a perfect world or a imperfect ideology with a perfect ideology, um, but that we are... there. Yeah, we are... It, it's it's more of a movement, and that there are particular yeah. things that we can, that we think that we can, it's um, very possible to address and to confront and to dismantle and replace with something more life giving and life affirming. Yeah. Um, but that if we were to uh, abolish capitalism and, and and achieve a more democratic alternative, we would still have problems. Um, we uh, we would still fail, and so. Yeah. Uh, Marika, I really appreciate the, the work you've done in this in this book both for Christianity and theology and then also for um, uh, fellow comrades listening in and so again, thank you so much for joining on the show and for the work you're up to Thank you, it's
1: good to see to you
0: Friends, thanks for listening And a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.